Merry Christmas. The cuteness quotient on the stage just went to zero. Just boom. <laughs> so high and then gone. I'm glad you all survived the blizzard. I was all set for a foot and a half of snow, so we got a little bit of wind and some cold. I'm a little bit disappointed. Hard to stay disappointed with a white Christmas in Michigan, though. You know, it's kind of uneven here, so like, we'll take what we've got, we'll be grateful for it, and everybody came through okay. Um, so last week, we covered kind of the run-up and the actual birth of, of Jesus. Uh, so this week, we're going to be talking about, again, God coming to earth as a baby, but a little bit more maybe our response to that. Like, how do we respond to the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh and also a child in the manger? Um, and so it's, it's going to be about not just Christmas. Like, we, you know, Katie read that whole story that we're sort of used to, the, the, the tradition of, you know, the innkeeper and the manger and Mary and Joseph and the stable and all those kinds of things. Like, that's sort of how we normally think of, of the Christmas story. So she read that, but we're not actually going to dip into a lot of those details. We're going to talk about our response. And really, our response has to be that Jesus is the only one that's worthy of our worship. That's what Christmas has to be about. That has to be the focal point of, of our celebration, that Jesus is the one that's worthy of worship. So again, we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, what happened, but it's not actually the nativity. Like we talk about the nativity, right? And it's like, okay, there's the shepherds, there's the angel, there's Mary and Joseph. And then you're like, there's also the wise men, but they don't always make the cut, right? They're sometimes they're farther away. And the reason is because it happened, the wise men happened a little bit later. So we're going to talk about the wise men. We don't know how much later. So this is after sort of Christmas, whatever that time was, you know, it's not like the first Christmas, it's like a day or seven or 180 days later. We don't really know. So we're going to be talking about that. And, and as you read the story, or as we read the story together, think about, think about the fantasies and the myths that our culture talks about, about kings, especially about kings that aren't like expected to be kings, right? Like kings that sort of pop up out of nowhere. And what you realize is like, there's something in this story that, that pulls us all in that like, there's this child, this king that's not expected to be a king. And yet there's all these elements that you'll see that sort of pop out. And I'm not going to really focus on that, but I want to tell you that on the front end. So that's kind of in the back of your mind as, as we read this, as we go through it. So Matthew chapter two, uh, we'll start in verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of to them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you, have come, when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child and Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So we're going to start off, we're going to look at the wise men and sort of where they come from and a little bit about their, their story and their journey. Um, we sing about we three kings, right? Like we sing we three kings of Orientar. They're probably not actually kings. They're wise men. That's a little bit different. Um, wise men is, is more, um, and this is a little bit controversial sounding, but it's more like fortune teller, dream reader, astrologer, right? Like someone that reads the stars. That was kind of their, their focus. We might use the word sorcerer today if we kind of saw their job description. Um, they were called magi. That was the official sort of word for them. And they were, they were from Babylon. So it says from the east, it's basically east of where Jerusalem is, right? So you, you look to the east, and you're like Babylon's east of, of there. Um, and actually, we don't know very much about these guys, right? Like you just read everything that we've got officially about them. But you look at this, and in the ancient world, being a magi was sort of a prestigious thing. It was, it was important. It was a job where, you know, kings would actually talk to the Magi and say, okay, so this is what the stars say. Let's, let's try and understand this. So we kind of have these guys that we don't really know where they're from or what they're doing. We have some guesses based on just the description. Um, so the guess is, and, and we don't know this, but the guess is that Daniel went like back 400 years before. So if you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den, that was a whole story, right? Like that's a really popular Bible story. So that story, at one point in Daniel's life, he was promoted to the head of the Magi. That was like his job description. And it was because he could understand dreams. Like God supernaturally explained to him what this dream meant. And he explained it to the king. So the king's like, you're really good at this job. We're going to make you the boss. So that's probably where these guys actually heard about the God of Israel, right? So Daniel, being a person that was faithfully following the God of Israel, he would have known the scriptures, he would have been willing to share that, and probably had copies. So that's probably how it sort of entered into their, their knowledge, right? So they're like, they've got this guy in their history that he was really big into the Jewish scriptures. So they're like, okay, so we read those too. Like that's one of the things that we, that we understand. And then at some level they were studying those and they, they actually knew it pretty well because they understood this, this prophecy. Um, and we don't know the Old Testament as well as these guys did, honestly, because we're like, what was the prophecy about the star? Like, nobody remembers this. You read through and you're like, it's just buried, right? It's actually in Numbers. Um, and I'm not going to go into the story because it's not a Christmas story. And also, it's crazy. Um, but if you want to read a story about a guy that talks to angels and donkeys and also foretells the future, Numbers 22 is where you start, right? Like, crazy story. We're not getting into it today, but read it. It's very good. So Numbers 24, this is this guy who has some level of relationship with God, and he's supposed to be speaking over the people of God. He's supposed to be cursing them. He refuses to do that, but he's speaking this prophecy over the, over the people of God, and he says this, Numbers 24, in starting in verse 16, it says, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, Falling down with his eyes uncovered, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So we read that, and we're like, oh, the star is like a metaphor, right? Like, there's this important person that's going to come out of Jacob. And the wise men read that, and they're like, we're astrologers. It says star. We're pretty sure that's a star. They, they read it very literally, which 
I'm not sure that that's the right way to read this, right? But they did. They actually read it literally, and God said, you know what? Because you're honestly seeking the truth, because you're honestly seeking sort of what I'm supposed to be doing in the world, I'm going to honor that. Right? Like God honored them earnestly seeking in his word for what he was trying to do. And so that star was a literal thing. It was at some level a miracle. I mean, they read it, they saw it, and they're like, this is supernatural. This is something that's different. They studied the stars, so they would have been not surprised by like normal sort of rotations of the world, right? Like they did this for a living. So they're looking and they, they look up and they're like, okay, this is, this is God speaking that there is gonna be this king that's gonna be born in Judah. And we know this because this guy predicted it. And so that was their job to figure that stuff out. And they're like, this is definitely weird enough. This is something that God's doing that's unique. And so based on what they saw in scripture and, and by their study, they said, we, this guy is important enough. We're going to go, we're going to worship this guy. This is a king that's been born. We're going to go and we're going to honor him the way that we, we feel like God would have us to do. That's almost a personal invitation by God. Like, it's almost like God says, I know that you're probably not reading this exactly right, and I know that you're probably not 100% doing the right thing with the rest of your life, but also, you're putting the effort into to studying, and so why don't you come and, and you get to see my Messiah before anybody else does, really? Right, and so God offers them this opportunity, and their response is, yes, I'm gonna respond to that. I see what God's doing, and I wanna respond to that. And that's a really important thing to do, but also it's a really hard thing to do. Like when we see God acting, when we see God moving and inviting us to be a part of it, it's really difficult sometimes to say, you know what, I'm gonna take that step, I'm gonna step out in faith and I'm gonna obey and do the thing that I think that God's calling me to do. I think about in my own life, there's been a couple of times where it's like, okay, God tells me to take a step of faith and I'm like, I don't wanna do that, right? There was a long time where I worked a crappy job. You guys all know about that. Um, and at that point, there was a couple different opportunities for me to jump ship, right? Like where I could say, okay, I don't have to work here anymore. I can find this other job. But every time I would be like, okay, Lord, should I take this other job? Like, what's the opportunity that you like, have you, have you blessed this opportunity? Is this the direction I'm supposed to go? And every time God would respond with, you need to teach the young adults and you need to keep the discipling the way that you sh you're doing it now. And it was like, well, that's not really a no, but it's also not a yes. And what does that mean? And every time that another opportunity popped up, it'd be something weird that would ruin all those other things that I was supposed to be doing. So God's like, you need to keep, you know, teaching the young adults. And it's like, well, this is second shift. So that would kind of screw that up. I can't do that anymore. And it's really hard to say, okay, God told me one thing and I'm going to just keep trusting him and obeying that one thing rather than do the thing that I want to do. And yet, that's where these wise men were. They really don't know that much. They look up and they're like, all right, this king is coming. God's revealed that this king is special. We're going to honor that one thing that God has revealed to us, and we're going to trust him to sort of reveal the rest of the plan along the way. And God did. God, God honored that. And so they're obeying God, and they're doing what God called them to do. And Matthew's point with that is that this is something really important that's happening. These guys are foreign dignitaries that come to honor the Messiah in a way that's completely different from what we would expect, right? He was a baby born in a manger. He's not, he doesn't seem that important. And yet there's people traveling internationally to honor him as the king. And that, that's what they show up as. They're these foreign dignitaries that are obedient to what they've seen in the word of God in order to honor the Messiah. 
And so they're, they're essentially the first foreigners, the first Gentiles, like we're not Jewish, so that's kind of us. Like they sort of represent us as they come and worship, right? They, they show up and they're honoring what God revealed to them and they're worshiping the king in a way that's, that's unique at that time. So those are the good guys, right? Those are the wise men, the kings. But then we've got this other king. <laughs> um, and he kind of pops up really early. He's not the real king. So I talked about like sort of myth elements or fantasy elements that come in. This is the evil king that's the usurper. He's in like all the stories, right? I don't want to st- spend a lot of time on Herod because he's a jerk. Um, <laughs> he's not really a king. He was raised as a Jew and he claimed to be king. And that was his thing is like he claimed to be the king of the Jews, but he was actually from somewhere else. And he didn't really worship God the way that he was supposed to. He kind of just said that he was doing that because he needed the political power that, that came along with it. Um, to let you know like how big of a jerk he was, he, he married into another line in order to sort of consolidate his rule. And then when he realized people liked his son more than him, he killed his firstborn son. And then he realized his wife didn't like that, so he killed her too. And then he killed two other sons just to like sort of consolidate, like make sure like, no, no, you guys are paying attention to me, like nobody else. So multiple kids, multiple wives get executed. Um, in fact, he was, he was a little king like underneath the, the emperor, right? And the emperor that hired him was like, I would rather be his sow than his son. Like that's your boss. That's not good if that's the attitude, right? So he's an illegitimate king and he's ruling, and he knows he's illegitimate. And so when the wise men show up, and they're like, we've come to worship the newborn king of the Jews, he's like, oh boy, like this is gonna be a problem, right? Like, and, and we know that he doesn't have any ethics or morals about killing anybody, so immediately it's a problem for Jesus, right? But it's also just like the whole world is kind of looking like, all right, what's this guy gonna do? He, he knew... He was raised as a Jew, so he knew the prophecies of the Messiah. He knew the promise of the coming king. He was aware of all those things, and yet his response is, let's see if I can take this out before it even gets started. Like, it's the opposite response of the wise men. The wise men have, like, a very little piece of what the truth is, and they're like, we're going to follow that, we're going to obey that. That's the thing that we have to do. Herod's living like next to the temple. He's got all the people that teach the word of God all around him and he doesn't want to hear it. Like he's much more interested in consolidating his power and doing that violently than he is about hearing what God has done. If he was an actual good Jewish king, he would have said like, oh, the Messiah is born. This is amazing. Let's figure this out. I can, I can use the power I have now to set him up. He can rule and reign because his, his going to be perfect. And I know I'm not perfect. And so we'll set him up and he'll be the one that'll rule forever. And he could have done that, but because he wasn't a good king, he's just like, no, I got to lock this in. I got to figure this out. Um, So he doesn't want a legitimate king. He doesn't want a good king. He wants just the power that he has, and he's going to do whatever it takes in order to consolidate that. So he refuses to acknowledge what God is doing, and instead he actively tries to undermine what God's doing. Look look at his lies in in verse 7. It says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what, what time the star had appeared. And he said to them, uh, go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So we find out later that he's much more interested in killing Jesus than in worshiping him. But he tells them, like, they're not going to believe me if I want to kill this baby. So let's just tell him I want to go worship him too. And so you guys will go and kind of do my dirty work. 
And so the wise men, they've traveled all this way to find the promised king. And they're like, yeah, sure, we'll go a little bit further. But Herod, who ought to be worshiping this child as well, is like, I don't really want to leave my palace. It's five whole miles to Bethlehem. I don't want to go that far. Like, when you think, like, and then the people that are around him that are supposed to be supporting, you know, the, the ultimately the Messiah, they're in the same boat. They're just like, yeah, we don't really want to go to Bethlehem. Let's just hang out here and we'll let the wise men go and we'll see what happens. There, nobody seems to really be interested in the fact that these guys are like, no, no, the Messiah is born. This is a big deal. We need to worship him. And everybody who ought to be spending their lives worshiping is just like, Yep, I guess. See you later, guys. Like, we'll, we'll see you once you figure it out. So the response of Herod, who knew the promises of God, who should have been worshiping, the response of the chief priests and the, the scribes, who knew the promises of God and should be teaching them and worshiping, is the exact opposite of these wise men. Right, like these wise men don't really know that much, but they recognize like this is something unique that God is doing and we want to go and worship. And that's their focus. Let's go worship the newborn king. And everybody else that ought to be worshiping is sort of standing there like, I mean, go ahead, let us know how that works out and maybe we'll jump in if it's a good thing. We don't, they just don't care. The people that are supposed to be worshiping God are choosing to not. And that's really like a sad part of this whole Christmas story. Like the wise men part is awesome. These foreign dignitaries traveling halfway across the world in order to worship, that's amazing. But then everybody else that ought to be there too is just kind of like, yeah, whatever. And they're placed right next to each other so we notice that. We see that as we read the Christmas story. And so my first application question to you is this. How do I respond to what God's doing? Because we know the truth. We have understood and had it revealed to us what God is doing a lot of the time. And the question is, is are we going to be excited and jump in on that? Or are we going to be sort of like the scribes and like Herod? We're like, yeah, that's a thing, but we'll let somebody else figure it out and maybe we'll jump on later. I think a lot of times we're, we choose to take that, that step back because we don't want to actually run the risk like the wise men did. Like the wise men traveled a long way. They were tired, they were exhausted, they were burnt out, and yet they got to see something unique and special that God was doing. And we don't wanna run all that risk or go through all that trouble. We're like, I'm pretty comfortable and I know it's close, so maybe later. So the wise men see God working and they're moving and, and they recognize all that. And so I want to stop for a minute because like we're going to put the story on hold and I want to talk about this prophecy because there's a lot there. And I think that that reveals a little bit of why the, the wise men were so excited. So they didn't know this other prophecy from Micah, but that's, that's a part of the reason why the people that sh were the scribes and the Pharisees, they should have been excited, but they weren't. Um, so look at, at verse six, it says, verse six, and you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler that will shepherd my people Israel. So if you pop back to Micah five in order to read that sort of in context, um, you notice a couple of things. One is that Matthew's not actually quoting it directly. He sort of grabs two verses and smushes them together, which he gets to do because he wrote part of the Bible. Um, so the first half is from Mike, Micah 5, 2, but the second half is from verse 4. 
And he's making a point with this. He's making the point that this isn't just a baby that's born to be king, that's going to be the Messiah, but that he's going to be the perfect king, that he's going to be the perfect ruler that will be better than all the other rulers. If you look at verse 4 in Micah 5, it says this. So speaking of the king that's born in, in Bethlehem, it says, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. That's the ruler that the wise men traveled around the world in order to see. That's the king that we celebrate being born this morning. And he shall be their peace. Right? Like that's a king that you can be excited about. This isn't some guy that's there to consolidate his power to sort of scrape and scratch and do what he can in order to have some level of importance in this world. His, his rule doesn't have an end. He's going to have an eternal reign in peace. He's going to bring everyone together to dwell securely. That's the king that we want to worship. Right, the Roman Empire and Herod, to a, to a lesser degree, they claimed to bring peace. Like, that was one of their claims. Like, we're the, the Roman peace, that's what we bring. But the reality was is that they ruled by smashing everybody that opposed them. They didn't care about anybody, they cared about their own power, so they would just run you over. They didn't care. But we see this, this is a shepherd. This is a king that cares enough to say, I'm not going to run you over. I'm going to lead you and gently guide you in the direction that you need to go. I'm going to love you and show you the right path so that ultimately you will want peace, that you will be peaceful, not just on the outside because you're afraid, but your whole lives will be filled with peace and it'll come out of you. We have that opportunity for real peace this morning. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We can have peace with one another, not because we're afraid, but because Jesus has done the work. We've been justified by faith, right? So when we come to him in faith, we say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you to, to reconcile me with God because I can't have peace in and of myself. I can fake it on the outside, but internally I can't know peace without you. We come to him, we confess our sins, and he adopts us into his family. He justifies us by faith so that our, our faith is is in the fact that he's done that. And he, so he then removes our sin. He says, okay, you come to me in faith. I'm gonna remove your sin. You're, you're not a sinner anymore. You're one of my children. I'm gonna allow you to come into my family. You're justified. We stand before God without any fear of who God is because we've been justified by faith. We're not afraid of punishment. We're not afraid of hell. We're not afraid of the power of God because he's brought us into his family. We're made not guilty by God because of our faith. And then as a result of that, we have peace. We have a relationship with God. We don't have to be afraid. And what happens then is because I know that God loves me and I'm secure in his love, then I don't have to be angry or bitter or frustrated with you because you just haven't experienced that in the same way that I have. And I can show you love because of the peace that God has given me can flow out of me into, into the world. And ultimately, as we do that, then God can lead us to, to be a part of his kingdom and we become more and more, like we become a people of peace and we can spread that peace to one another. And so at Christmas, when we talk about Jesus being the Prince of Peace, it's not just this abstract, we don't fight each other at Christmas. 
It's the fact that we have a relationship with God, that he's given us his peace and we can now live that out. So that's the king that the wise men came to worship. That's the point. That's the child that they said, this is the one that's going to rule. He's going to be the one that's the peace of the world. And so when, when we come to worship, that's what we're aiming for, to worship that child in that way. So we're going to look at the last section where the wise men sort of get there and they get their opportunity to, to worship the king. And we're going to read the last four verses and I want to tease out a little bit what the wise men actually sort of do and how that pertains to us because we ought to worship the way that the wise men worshiped. In verse 9, Matthew 2, 9, After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that had, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the wise men heard Herod, okay, it's this one town, that's, that's what they, he told them. And so they're like, okay, we're going to go to this town, but it's, a, it's not like three houses at a stoplight. Like it's actually a town, right? Like it's a village. And so they're on their way there and they don't actually know how they're going to figure out which kid is the promised Messiah. So they, they leave Herod's palace and they're heading toward Bethlehem and the star reappears. There's all these theories about like what the star was, like it was two planets that aligned or it was this other star that kind of popped up and there's all these different theories that astronomers today have. Ultimately though, everybody looks at this part and they're like, that's definitely a miracle. Stars don't come low enough to be able to point out specific houses, right? So whatever you believe about the star, ultimately it was a miracle. So these guys, they leave the palace, they're like, no, the star's leading us, we're following the star and it comes to rest over the place where the kid is. Like, it's actually like a neon sign, like, here's where baby Jesus is laying. And they're like, that's pretty cool. We could not have figured that out on our own, right? And so they respond with joy. They rejoiced, it says, exceedingly, with great joy, right? Like, this isn't like, oh, hey, high five. Good job, everybody. This is like, we just won the Stanley Cup. Like, we're so excited about this, right? Like, it's a huge party. It's not like, oh, yay, we're all happy now. It's like, no, no, we can finally actually see where the Messiah is born. We're very excited about this. This is party time. This is, this is cause for, like, everybody being super excited. Amen. Thank you, Al. I appreciate that. Everybody else is like, oh, I should be excited. So <laughs> the thing is, is like God reveals something and they're like, wow, this is amazing. This is, this is the thing we've been looking for for months, for years. And now God's revealed this to us in a special way. They didn't suppress their joy. They're not like, oh, let's be cool. Nobody wants it. Like we're cool. Like it's, it's fine. You know, like it's really neat what God's doing, but we don't want anybody to think we're weird. They're jumping around in the streets with excitement, right? how can we joyfully worship? And I ask that because, okay, we're a little bit reserved in our worship. And also we only, we think about worship as only singing. So there's like this combo where we're, we struggle with this a little bit. I, I recognize that. It's lakeside. We've got some really solid roots. The thing is, though, it's okay to rejoice. Like, and not just in our worship. Like, it's fine to rejoice in your worship. The kids were way more expressive than we normally are on a Sunday. I get that. That's good, right? Also, 
we can be expressive in the fact that we praise God all the time. Our worship isn't limited to our Sunday morning. We can just say like, praise the Lord when things happen that are good, that we're positive about. We can celebrate the goodness and the graciousness of God all the time. We can rejoice in who God is and what he's done and what he is doing in this world. It's a good thing. How do we joyfully worship? How do we express our joy as we worship our king? The, the next thing that we see is that they fall down and worship. Right? They see the baby and they fall down and worship. They actually kneel down and they say, we're humbling ourselves before the king of the world. This is a little bit weird in the context, right? Like when you think about this, you're like, okay, so they're magi. That means that they have the authority to walk into Herod's palace, right? And they're like, hey, we've got some questions. Like if anybody normal, if any normal person does that, Herod's like, yeah, I've got questions too. Why are you here? Get out, right? Like it's not, you don't, normal people don't have that authority, but these guys are important. They're wealthy and they're connected to kings. They've got some power. They're not actually kings, but they're like the people that kings definitely pay attention to. And so they walk in to Herod's palace and it's like, oh, these are important people. We need to, we need to pay attention to them. They've got money. They've traveled very far. These are very important people. And yet they see this baby who's doesn't have anything in this world, right? Like he's born to a, a poverty level, like blue collar worker. He's, it's not a wealthy kid. It's probably not a nice house. And they walk in and they're like, this is the Messiah that God has, and they immediately fall down and they worship. They set aside their social standing. They set aside their financial differences. Like all those things, they could stand there and be like, we're very important. That's a very nice baby. Good job. Like, but they didn't do that. They just, they immediately fell down and worshiped. And I think sometimes we approach God with a little bit of pride. We don't really want to humble ourselves. We want, to, we want to tell God how great we are. And we want God to acknowledge how great we are so that we can sort of stand there and be important with how important we are. And we want everybody to acknowledge, yep, we're really important. We're, we're great. It's like, no, that's not how you approach the king of the world. Right? Like, he's the God of the universe lying in a manger, and they're just, they throw themselves down. They're like, we are willing to be humble before because we understand who you are. The next thing that they do is they offer their gifts. And they offer gifts that are fit for a king. I mean, they had already given a lot of time and energy in order to be there, but also they give him legitimately kingly gifts. They didn't shift their gift when they're like, oh, he's a poor baby. I can probably dial this back. Like, I don't have to give the best gift. I can, I can like skimp on the dollar amount, you know, maybe give like my pocket change and the, this family will be thrilled with that because I'm like, I've got a lot of money and so I don't have to give everything. They're like, no, we, we came this far to honor this king. We're gonna do it. We're gonna give our everything. We're gonna give what we have. We spent all this time and this energy and this money to get here. We're not gonna shortchange this kid now. Their generosity wasn't about impressing Mary and Joseph, right? Like Mary and Joseph would have been impressed with anything. They were like, no, this is what we came to give. This is what we have. And so we're gonna honor the king by giving what we have. And so my question here is, how can I honor Jesus through my generosity this Christmas? We're going to make budget this year. This isn't that question, okay? 
<laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is our generosity a lot of times is not just financial, it's our time, it's our energy, and we struggle sometimes to give of ourselves of what we truly have in order to honor Jesus. And, and, and time and energy and money are all things that we can give, and they're all things that we need to be generous with. Right, like we've got a lot of blast teachers back there, and if you teach blast right, you're being generous with your time. Because you're saying, this is what God asked for me, and so this is an act of worship, and I'm gonna teach these kids because I love them and because God's called me to do it, and so it becomes an act of worship. Right, we all had coffee this morning in the lobby. That's, thank you, again, perfect. Again, that's an act of worship. Not the drinking coffee, that can also be an act of worship. But like making coffee, like that's a thing where it's like, because I love my brothers and sisters in Christ, I wanna serve them, I wanna do this for them. That's an act of worship. It's a service, but it's an act of worship. There's lots of ways that we can worship through the things that we do, through the opportunities that we have. And we need to make sure that we're not being stingy with our time, with our energy, or with our treasure. We need to just be willing to be like the wise men and say, this is the gift that I have and I'm giving it to Jesus. The last example we see from the wise men is that when the angel gives an order, they obey. Um, this is a little bit easier if it's an angel telling you what to do, <laughs> right? Like they're, they're after they've worshiped, they sort of got the thing that they came for. They've, they've done the thing that they, they were supposed to. They've traveled all this way. And then the angel says, by the way, I need you to do this one other thing. And they're like, yep, we're gonna do that. It's really easy for us to to sort of do what we feel like we're supposed to, and then like, okay, I've given my gift, I've worshiped, I've done all the things, and now I'm done. And God says, I still need you to just obey. You still have to take that next step and just follow what I've told you to do. And the wise men respond to a new revelation with new obedience. They're like, God asked me to do this? Okay, now I'm gonna go do that. That's the next thing that I'm supposed to do. They don't hang around, they don't do their own thing. They say, this is what God commanded, this is what I'm gonna do as a result. Right, and so, so we see these wise men who traveled all this distance because they, they saw what God was doing in the world. They saw that the, the Prince of Peace had come and they wanted to worship him, they wanted to honor him. And so when they, when they see what God is doing, first of all, they rejoice. They're very excited about what God is doing. They're very excited about what God has done and they're willing to get excited about it. And so they rejoice. They share their joy with each other. They're pumped. And then when they see Jesus, they fall down and they worship. They recognize that this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and they're not gonna pretend that they're important in the face of that. So they fall down and they worship. And they offer their gifts They'd already given a lot of their time, they'd already given a lot of their, their energy, but they also give their financial gifts. And they say, this is what God has, this is what God has given us, and so we're gonna share that. And then when that's all done, they still make the decision to obey. They still say, there's one more thing that God has us to, to do, and that's to be obedient. My last application question is this. What's my next step of obedience? What's God asking me to do? There's a lot of different ways that we can worship and all of them end up being one more step of obedience, right? So we have to choose over and over and again to say, this is what it takes for me to obey. That's the step that I need to take. Whether that's 
rejoicing, whether that's being excited about what God has done and sharing that joy with the people that are around us. That's a part of what it means to obey some of the time, right? Um, maybe it's about accepting Jesus as your peace, about finding that peace with God and allowing that to, to change your life. Maybe that's your next step. Maybe it's honoring Jesus with your, your time and your energy and your generosity. Whatever it is, God's asking us to take one more step to be obedient, and, and that's what we have to do this morning. Because ultimately, Jesus is the only one that's worthy of our worship.